Would you please pray with me? Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let me begin this evening by telling you about the Good Friday sermon I am not going to preach, okay? Because recently at a gathering of some clergy, someone recalled the Good Friday homilies they would rather not hear again. Like the sermon that shared in graphic detail a medical doctor's report as to what crucifixion does to your human body. It's not pretty, right? Or another that went through each step of Jesus' path to Calvary, as reported in our gospel reading, to accentuate the physical brutality and pain he endured at each step. Or I myself recall a sermon that showed an excerpt from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Yee, it's the goriest on-screen depiction of the crucifixion ever. So just that we're clear, we're not going there tonight. But I bring that up because I'm intrigued as to why these preachers on a day like this feel the need to go there. Why? Why would you preach a sermon like that? I think there are two reasons why. First is because 2,000 years later, the cross has lost for us some of its counter-cultural punch. Right? The cross does not shock us, horrify us, like it once did for those earliest believers and the Roman world they lived in. The cross has for us ceased being an instrument of torture and execution, the Roman equivalent of undergoing lethal injection in a slow-burn electric chair. But it was for the earliest Christians such an instrument of torture, and yet they embraced it. The cross was then countercultural, despite the fact that even some Christians died on crosses themselves they would still make the sign of the cross routinely throughout their days so that one church father in the fourth century recounted they would do it as they rose up and they sat down, they went in, they went out, the sign of the cross everywhere. They even began wearing it as jewelry and adorned their churches with it, their homes, and so on and so forth. Instead of a symbol of shame and revulsion, for us, I think it's become art and beauty and, if you will, a mere symbol. Partly because we're alienated from that original world where the cross was a scandal. It was a costly, painful, shameful way to die. But I think there's a second reason why we feel this need to sort of re-inject the cross of Christ with some drama. It's, I think, because... The cross maybe reminds us of something we would rather forget, or we actually spend a lot of time and energy in our lives trying to avoid, namely suffering, pain, and death. You see, maybe the cross doesn't speak to us as powerfully anymore because we in the West, at least, in general, live in rather prosperous and affluent times. The author of a recent best-selling book, 
called the comfort crisis, stresses how today in Western societies, even the poorest of the poor often enjoy comforts which, less than 200 years ago, were reserved for kings and queens. The point of so much technological innovation is not just to treat sickness or alleviate affliction, which of course is an incredibly great blessing of technology. But really, it seems like technology anymore exists to make life as comfortable and pleasurable as possible. To amuse ourselves to death, as Neil Postman has put it. We live, relatively speaking, like kings and queens of comfort. And so we cannot relate to a king whose crown is made of thorns. Or we have at our disposal now the means to anesthetize ourselves to suffering and pain almost indefinitely. So maybe the cross of Christ we kind of rear back from. Because Jesus, a homeless man of sorrows, hardship, and affliction, who died a torturous death, He's not the king that we in our affluence and achievement desire or really can relate to. Maybe that's why Mel made a really gory movie about it, right? Or these preachers reach for those images. I would like us briefly to let the gospel chip away at those two problems we have with the cross. (laughs) That the cross doesn't seem like a countercultural thing to us anymore that Jesus' death before the powers and principalities in first century Palestine, it doesn't really do it for us anymore. Let's see if we can't let the scripture tear down that just a little bit. And let's see if we also can't allow the scripture to interrogate our own sense of what it means to suffer and why somehow in God's divine economy, suffering is not something simply to be ashamed of, but it's actually the glory of our king. Let's take a look at each of these in turn. First of all, the king crowned with thorns is countercultural. If we'll just pay attention, if we'll just let the scripture really speak to us, okay? You see, Kings with crowns whose authority derives from power, we know that really well. Pilate, we see in this exchange that they dramatize so well, held the keys of life and death over Jesus. So did the religious leaders who could stir up enough of a crowd to pressure Pilate into crucifying Jesus. You see, that's the way the powers and principalities of this world always work, is that It's not so much whether they have the legal right or ability. Pilate seems a little bit puzzled or perplexed by that, but he finds ways of overcoming his inhibitions very quickly. And he brings Jesus to his death. We know what the powers of this world are like. But what you see in the cross of Jesus Christ is a king who doesn't wield power for its own sake. But in his exchange with Pilate, he very tellingly says what? I have come to bear witness to the truth. Have you ever noticed in politics, the first victim is truth? 
so whatever powers in 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 play, truth goes whoop, right out the window. In fact, it's a chronic problem in our society today that truth is totally lost in the ideological battles that are ripping our country apart. But in the middle of this, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And they put him to death for it. You see, the religious leaders, they couldn't handle it that in their interrogation of him, he blasphemed because he referred to himself, at least as the Methian account has it, as the son of man. And he, he embraced the image there of a certain kind of kingship. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, it's stunning. The kingdom of God crops up everywhere. Jesus never once, until here, embraces the title of king. He talks about his kingdom, so by implication, he's a king, but he's not yet a king. It's a kingdom that the Father is going to give him. In fact, he says that numerous times, but he never says, I'm a king. At, at the very most, he insinuates he's an heir of it. The religious leaders kind of put a fine point on it. They say, we have no king but Caesar. That's heresy. I'm glad they say it so bluntly. But when you stop and think about it, how often do we in our world in our desire to appear relevant, to fit in, to have a voice in contemporary affairs, allow Caesar to usurp the throne. I think this has two different dimensions. On the one hand, there's really the very clearly institutional way that to say that Jesus is king and like he says to Pilate, by the way, Pilate, you don't have any authority unless it was given to you. That authority works its way out through institutions, our political institutions, our churches. But Jesus gives us a different image of what that kind of authority is like. It's an authority based on truth, and it's based on meekness and humility. Because in the face of Pilate here, he doesn't fight back. In fact, when Peter grabs the sword... And what a valiant effort it is, right? Chopping off a guy's ear. Not so much. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh at that part, actually, I think, you know? Jesus heals his ear and says, that's not how we're going to do this. So to our institutions, Jesus gives a very different model of the suffering servant who lays down his life for the sheep. And it's no more present and clear than here. What a great king that is. But I'd also ask you to stop and think very briefly about, particularly as you come to the cross this evening, what does it mean for maybe not the political leaders or the ideologies of our day to sit on the throne of your heart, but for you to sit on that throne? Because we all kind of in our own way like to have our own little fiefdoms, thank you, or the little part of our heart where I get to be a, a vice regent here. 
But Jesus makes it so clear that all authority is based on the truth of who he is. And if he's not the truth of your heart, you're not in the truth. You have to be willing to come to the cross, to lay that at the cross. I think the countercultural vision and, and nature of the cross was so clear in, in two different examples. I want to leave you these two examples and move on before we move on to the final point. A few years ago in 2015, there were 21 Coptic Christians who were martyred in, in Libya, in North Africa by ISIS. They were beheaded. You know how they knew they were Christians? It's an ancient practice in the Coptic church. These men had a little tattooed cross at the base of their thumbs. The cross indelibly inscribed in their very flesh. And this practice is so that they don't have intruders from the outside coming in to worship for fear that they might persecute them. But the flip side is the cross opened them up marked them for martyrdom. You see, there is a countercultural way that if you really stand for the cross, it can cost you everything. But we have to be so much more aware. It's more insidious than that today for us. And this second example was impressed upon me. And I just got to tell you, this was a situation in my life where I had no clue as to how I was going to find my way out of a conflict I was in with somebody who was dear to me, very dear indeed. And it was over American politics. Maybe you've had one of those. And this person was about certain elections, certain politicians. And if I didn't comply with this person's wishes, there were going to be terrible relational consequences. Things like the ending of our relationship were actually floated by this other person. And, you know, like Jesus says, you don't need to prepare the sermon. I'm going to give it to you, which, by the way, I don't really recommend this as a strategy for, for preaching well. But there are these times where if you simply, and everything in me just said, Lord, I really don't know what to do here. That after I'd heard from this person, we sat down and had to talk about it, and then it finally just it hit me like a bullet out of the blue i said you know i love you and i respect you but the problem is this you're asking me to handle hand my conscience over to you to submit to your authority on this and to vote according to your conscience and you know what there's only one person in this world who can tell me, has control over my conscience, and it's not me. It's the Lord Jesus. And I realized then the power of the cross. King Jesus on the cross, if he can say, you can say that about your conscience in every area of your life. And let's be really clear, I'm not there. <laughs> I was in that moment it was so clear you can't let your conscience be beholden to anybody else because the one who is worth it is the one who lays his life down for you 
not demanding you lay down your life for him, as the political powers and authorities always do. Our second problem, I think, is that we are in what, what this one author has called a comfort crisis. That everything in us hungers and thirsts for the goodness of, yes, good things. There's nothing wrong about having a good-paying job, a house, marriage, family, all the blessings of this life. Indeed, these are things, created goods, that the Lord God has given to us in their right place and right measure, richly to enjoy. But how often do these things become ends in themselves, become the kind of thing where the Lord, all of a sudden, in some way or another, is not really Lord. But that thing becomes the focus, becomes the good in and of itself for you. I personally have had a couple of really trying times in my life where I was stripped of some of the things that I thought I really wanted and needed. And I, it was hard. It was painful. It was not the, you know, one-way conveyor belt to achievement, onward and upward to my glory. And it was at that time, I think one time in particular, very profoundly and I've had to learn this again and again. But I learned in a new and more powerful way than ever the beauty of the cross of Christ. Because you see, there's this tremendous mystery in the economy of the cross that what happens as Jesus, in obedience to the Father, submits himself to the Father's will, and says in the garden, thy will be done. Right? He maybe had prayed the Lord's prayer, the prayer that he gave his disciples over and over again, numerous times in his life and ministry. But, you know, if you pray the Lord's prayer enough, the Lord's going to actually give you a chance to see if you're living by the Lord's prayer and not just saying it every week during the Eucharist especially that thy will be done part, <laughs> is a hard one. Jesus offered up his own petition in the garden, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And clearly, that's not what the Father had in store. You see, suffering is that kind of refining fire for any part of us that is not driven in this life by obedience to the one Lord who has modeled in his cross perfect obedience. You see, Jesus says in John 15, in, in what are wonderful words, words that particularly during this one part of my life nourished me deeply, abide in me as I abide in you. And believe me, in my difficulty and my frustration and disappointment, I needed some abiding, right? There was something about this idea that, wow, Jesus might be here with me in the midst of my suffering that became 
so much more real and more poignant than ever. That part I really liked. You know the part I didn't really like of John 15? Is when Jesus goes on to say, So if you abide in me and you love me, you will keep my commandments. Gulp. <laughs> like love that does not act and does not give itself, pour itself forth in acts of obedience, in genuine acts of love and compassion. It's not love at all. Right? And the Lord, he has won the authority to say, I'm abiding in you. And all he's doing is calling you and me, abide in me. That is to say, as he says elsewhere, pick up your cross and follow me. This really doesn't fit very well in 21st century America. It's a lesson that we would rather not learn. And we want to avoid at every turn, at every turn. But I love, and I was, I was just reflecting on this this week, the words of Martin Luther from his Heidelberg Disputation. Um, he says this, it's so memorable. He says, a theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God is hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good, quote-unquote, to evil. These are the people whom the apostle calls the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3. For they hate the cross and suffering and love works and glory and all the good stuff of life. Thus they call the good of the cross evil and the evil of a deed good. God can be found only in suffering and the cross. It gives me some sense of why maybe the cross is hard for us in America today. We flee suffering. We self-medicate pain through innumerable different machinations. And we constantly don't want to embrace the cross. But if we don't embrace the cross, my friends, we don't get its power. We don't get its glory. We don't get the strength like those martyrs on that beach in North Africa to actually stand up when it matters most. The real power that actually disarms the powers and principalities can only come because you know Christ and you know him crucified. Like St. Paul says, do you know him crucified in every area of your life? So I would encourage you this evening as we come to that cross, who's the king on the throne? Ask yourself that. If there's somebody other than 
the king with the crown of thorns, that might be a good place to start your conversation with the Lord at the cross. And where in your life is the Lord God calling you to obedience, calling you to that love of him with all your heart, soul, and mind, calling you, you to love your neighbor as yourself and quit putting yourself and your own interests in the place of your neighbor. Where is that your problem, your struggle? Because the Lord wants you to suffer in some very important ways, ways that will free you from the tyranny of self. Because let me be honest with you, if you're on the throne, you're a tyrant. You're not a very good king. You're certainly not one who lays your life down for your subjects. That's who we have. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.